Would you all stand, if you're able, for this morning's uh, sermon text from Genesis 1? Read in verses 1 through 13 of Genesis 1. If you've got a hard copy of the Bible, it's really easy to find. Page 1. If you uh, are looking at the screen, that, that helps, but um, we're going to be looking back to it. So it's on page 3 of the bulletin if you need it there as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, third day, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thank you. When I was in high school, there was a movie called Men in Black that came out. It was about aliens on Earth. And at the very end of the movie, uh, there was this zoom out. The, most of the movie took place in New York City. And it zooms out from New York City and then zooms out through the clouds and through the atmosphere. And so it's looking at the whole Earth. And then it keeps zooming out through all the planets of the solar system. So you're looking at our whole solar system, and then it keeps zooming out. So that you're looking at our whole galaxy, and then you're looking at a cluster of galaxies, and then you're looking at the whole universe, which you keep zooming out, and it's just, our whole universe is just one marble, and there's this alien like playing a game of marbles. And then takes our universe and puts it in another sack full of other universe marbles, and like walks away. And I think the meaning that is being implied there at the end of a movie that's really not about metaphysical things at all. It's about like shooting bug aliens. Is that everything's wonderful and everything's complex and vast and amazing and it's also all random. Like it might as well just be a universe that's a marble that some one alien in some much bigger universe is just rolling in a totally random game. And 
let me say, whatever amazing things going on in the universe that we do and don't understand, and there's so many of them, and all the questions that we have that we bring to this study of the book of Genesis, which may be answered, and then those that definitely will not be answered, one thing that the scriptures are really clear about, if you want to take them seriously, and certainly if you want to look at them uh, as the basis of faith, or as part of the basis of faith, is that it's definitely not a random universe. The last thing the universe is, is random, according to the scriptures. In all of the creating works of God that we've already seen, Stephen started a series last week, just looking at the first two verses. In all of the creating work that we see God doing, he's speaking, he's separating, he's seeing what he made or separated, and then he names it. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. What's described in Genesis 1 is an orderly, intentional creation that God delights in. You actually need that whole sentence. It's an orderly, intentional creation that God delights in. We are going to take a few passes at trying to dialogue as a congregation about some of the big Genesis 1 questions like, where did it all come from? What does it all mean? Uh, what is a human being? What is a man? What is a woman? What are the uniquely human responsibilities in this world that we find ourselves in and what are not? And uh, it's not all going to be satisfying of all our curiosities. We're going to do some podcasts where we kind of come at some different popular answers of these things if we can't address them all in, in sermons. And uh, the hope is that we'll also have some congregational dialogue about these things. But I want to say up front, there are some kinds of questions that you're going to be really frustrated by if you keep insisting on bringing them to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 particularly. For example, if you're asking questions like, how did nothing become something on a molecular material level? Like, how did molecules just start happening? And exactly how many eons ago, like to the, to the year or to the millennium maybe, how, how many eons ago did it begin to happen? You're going to be frustrated because we're going to see again and again it is often and usually not helpful to bring modern scientific questions to an ancient text. It's going to be much more rewarding to ask questions that would make sense to the ancients that originally understood it. And we're going to get there. We're going to tease that out and keep bringing your questions. These texts do answer certain questions, though, that I want you to very much expect answers to. Like, what is it all for? Functional questions. Not the molecular questions. The answers aren't really there in terms of how exactly Nothing became something in a way that like you could observe with a video camera or with a microscope. It's just not there. But questions like, how do I fit within it? What's the one who created it like? What's it all for? 
we, I think, are going to get the fullest answer to that at the beginning of chapter 2. But we get beginnings of an answer today. Whatever it's for, it's not random. Let me say it again, what I said a few minutes ago. Creation, as it's given to us in Genesis, as it's teased out, is an orderly expression of God's own delight. And so the two points I'm going to give you as we move forward are creation is ordered and creation is a delight. And I promise you need them both. First, creation is ordered. I don't know if you noticed this or if the book of Genesis is really new to you, but for centuries, many centuries, this is not a modern observation, interpreters of Genesis 1 have noticed that there are two main headings for God's creative work. One big heading in day one through three, which we're reading today. I stopped at day three, if you didn't notice, in verses one through 13, in the six days of creation. One big heading can be considered what we see in day one through three, and in the second heading is days four through six. All the way back in verse two, I'm going to read it again. It says, the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew words there are tohu. That's the without form uh, verb. And where we see that word elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures, it means something like wasteland. God looked out, and it was kind of like a wasteland. It was not inhabitable. It was formless. There was no there there. There was nothing there that could possibly be inhabited. And then void, bohu, which means simply empty. So there's a wasteland, can't inhabit it problem. And then there's no one there to inhabit it anyway. It's really clear. Days one through three are about addressing the wasteland problem. How do we make God saying to God, let us? As we move on in Genesis 1, we'll see. Make all of these things. He's basically in day 1 through 3, turning it into an inhabitable space. And then in days 4 through 6, he fills the space. So, days 1 through 3, we're going to be seeing he's making something possible to later be indwelt by creatures. Day 1. God says, verse 3, let there be light. Let there be light. Like us, the ancients, when they thought of light, were not thinking of just photons. Light meant revelation. Light meant like the lights coming on in your head and in your heart. It meant like, aha. It meant, I get it. It meant, I know, before I was in darkness. Now I'm in light. Something is there to be known, to be found, something to move towards, a path. Light is truth. Light is revelation. Light is salvation. Light is hope to the ancient Israelites. It's more than all that, but that's all there. And of course, as Stephen alluded to last week in the Gospel of John, John 1.1, he writes, not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He writes, in the beginning was the word the word, that illuminating one, the principle, the foundation of all creation, kind of getting at the same idea with other words. Again, they would not have understood light mainly as material particles of photons. That kind of understanding will not help us very much as a modern scientific view of what's happening here. But I think there's even more a main point to let there be light. 
more than revelation, light, understanding, that sense of light. We get the main purpose of let there be light when we read all of verses three through five. Let me read it again. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. I don't know if you thought about this, but it, it's a question. Why does, why does God call the light day? Day is not the same thing as light, and they knew that. Please return to the idea as we move through the book of Genesis. The ancients did not know everything that we know, but they were not stupid, and they were probably way better at observing what was around them than we are in terms of everyday life. Light wasn't just, they knew about fire. (laughs) Light can come from fire. Light can come from stars. Light isn't day. Why would light be called day here? Well, we get the rest of it in verse three through five. God's not just talking about light in the abstract. He's talking about a period of light that goes away and and, and it becomes darkness again. He's talking about a period of light, which contrasts with the period of time called night. Here's what I want you to understand. Day one is specifically about the creation of time. Of time. This thing that didn't exist in eternity, which is not comprehensible really to us, a state outside of time that God exists in. Day one is about the beginning of this totally essential and foundational part of our experience. Something happens and then something else happens, and we can look backwards and anticipate what's next. This defining condition of our existence. Not random, ordered. Day two. Day two is really confusing. And if it's not confusing, you did not read carefully. It's okay, we're gonna read it again. Verse six through eight, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Makes perfect sense. No. Verse seven, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The ancients believed that the sky was hard. They believed that the sky was firm. In fact, some translations don't call it an expanse. They call it, have you ever heard of the creation thing one day too being called a firmament? It's a lot of the old translations. Actually, some of the, some of the Hebrew poetry we're gonna look at a little bit later in this sermon says uh, it, it has one member of the Trinity talking to another member of the Trinity saying, I was there when the sky was made firm. This will rattle us if we insist on bringing our understanding of a layered atmosphere to this text. It is not doing something primarily material. It's doing something primarily functional. It's not answering the when did the molecules appear and exactly how and what would it have looked like under my microscope. It's saying what is everything for and how do I fit into it. That's that's the question it's asking and trying to answer. And let me just say this before I answer what it does mean for us. Well, let me quote. There's a guy named John Walton who wrote what I think is a helpful book called uh, The Ancient World of Genesis 1. He wrote this. 
He says throughout the entire Bible, there is not one single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. No passage offers a scientific perspective that was not common to the old world science of the time. God's not particularly interested in saying, let me send you a millennia or two ahead in terms of your scientific understanding. He's very interested, it seems, in meeting people where they are. So if we want to take this text seriously and listen to the questions it is asking and answering, I propose to you, it's something like, what does the sky mean for us? Well, if day one was all about time, day two really seems to be all about weather. Why did they think that there was a, a firm sky? Well, we need, in order to make this wasteland inhabitable, we need some precipitation. But if it's constantly falling on us, then we're in real trouble. That is not sustainable. But if it never falls on us, that's not sustainable either. We look around, we see what's around us, and we see this totally not random truth that something's holding the water up and then letting it fall. Day two seems to be about the creation of weather. A good creator can do that for us. Look at this other non-random condition for our existence. Though their science was shaky, that's what they were seeing and trying to, trying to say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. God helping them. God communicating with them and through them in the cultivation of this text. God's own word revealing to them, God created weather for you. Day three. Day three, I won't hold you in any suspense. It's about the plants. Day one's about weather. Day, day one's about time. Day two's about weather. Day three is about food. This other totally necessary aspect of our existence. Time, weather, food. The creation of food that keeps yielding. What you have at the end of day three is a place that now God can bring some creatures to. A place that God can, can make creeping things, as it says later in the text we'll look at next week, and eventually human beings to flourish on. Not random. Listen, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the debates between atheists and, and uh, theists, and there's a lot of them, and there's so many entry points. And it's going to be impossible to totally steer clear of them, but also we don't want to get embattled. But let me say this. Uh, there's a, there a 20th century astronomer who's become pretty famous. Uh, he, he, was a, he was an atheist, but his name was Fred Hoyle. And he said, if you want to hold that the universe is random, it's kind of like saying a tornado goes through a junkyard and using only the materials in the junkyard, the tornado passes on and there left in its wake is a perfectly constructed 747. That's what you're saying if you say things are totally random in the world. And then famously, the atheists come back and say, well, no, you don't understand at all. You're saying a tornado would come right through. Um, we believe in the very impersonal force of natural selection, which takes place over eons. And so your, your breakdown doesn't work. And here's where they basically land. You got one group of people saying, what we have around us is impossible, and yet it exists. 
totally hospitable for human life, impossibly hospitable for human life. And the other camp says, well, it's not impossible. It's just wildly improbable. And that's the impasse. Impossible versus wildly improbable. And all I have to commend to you is the scriptures say the table has been set on purpose. The table has been set on purpose. And some Christians come to this text and they say, it is only possible to see these days as 24-hour exact days where it all happened, time was created in 24 hours, and then uh, the expanse, however we now understand it, was created and move on. And that's the only possible way, I would commend you, that's not the only possible one, but though it's one I have to respect, because so many people I respect hold to that. Many believe that the word day was used to describe a much longer period, like we say things like, in the day of so-and-so, such transpired, like there's multiple uses of the word day. And we're going to get into that mostly through some online conversations and some non-Sunday in-person conversations. I think there are different views we can we can respect, but what we don't want to say, what we don't want to put on Genesis is that this stuff was random. Random is the last thing it is. The table has been set on purpose, but it's not just a set table. It's not just ordered like the phone book is ordered. It's also delightful. You don't go to the phone book. Do they even have phone books anymore? I don't know. But, and say, this is delightful. You don't understand creation if you don't look at it and say, this is delightful. And that's the second point. Let me just, some of you know people in your life who really major in things being ordered, and some of you know people who really major in things being delightful. Like growing up, some of you had an aunt where you went over to her house, and um, all of the furniture had plastic on it. You know what I'm talking about? And, and there was like soaps in the bathroom, but you weren't allowed to use them to wash your hands. They were only to look at. These are people that we know who major in order. And then there's the people who you go over to their house, and it's just all fun and delight all the time. And nobody knows when they're eating dinner, but it's delightful. And I mean, there's even this going through our congregation. I, I, I mean, it certainly goes through my family. Like one person saying, like, you know, why don't you ever have a schedule? And the other person says, well, I don't know. Why is your house like a museum? And back and forth it goes. And in all seriousness, I think people have different views of looking at creation. Look how orderly versus look how gorgeous. And all through the scriptures, you have both. You have, you need both. It's ordered, but it's also beautiful. How do I know this? First of all, if you haven't noticed yet, this is a song. And it is tragic to me for all the wars that go on over this text. You know, within the church, it's missed that this is um, also historical. But it's a song. They were like, you cannot, you, you cannot communicate what's going on here without making it poetry. Because the form is part of the function of the text. It doesn't fit the beauty of what's going on to make it prosaic. It's a song. Do you see the choruses? It was so, morning and evening. It is good. Evening and morning, the first day, the second day. It's a song. It's delightful. You sing about stuff you delight in. You don't just make lectures about them. Secondly, 
Secondly, it's good. The very phrase, it's good, that's been repeated in this text. And it's going to keep getting repeated. It's good. It just doesn't mean like, what amazing order. No. They're saying, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And thirdly, I need to take you to a passage outside this text. So, uh, Harrison, actually, and just, yeah, you can leave that up there for now. Um, this is one other place in the scriptures. If, if we were going to do a series just on how things began, on like in the beginning, we're doing one on the book of Genesis. But if we were going to do things on the Bible's perspective on origins, we would actually go to a lot of other places besides Genesis, because a lot of the rest of the Old Testament talks about it, actually. And here's just one place. There is this song that is sung by someone called Wisdom in Proverbs 8. It's a character that describes themselves as personified wisdom. And I'll read some of it. The last two verses are up here. Proverbs 8 says, I am wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Before the beginning, when there were no depths, I was there when he made firm the skies. I was beside him like a master workman. And here we go. I was daily his delight. Do you see that relational delight that was there before God said, let there be anything? It's important to the Israelites that they sing about this. I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, and then get verse 31. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Delighting God within God. We're going to get into this a little bit too. Um, it is false to think that ancient Judaism was strictly Unitarian. It was at least binitarian, if not like proto-Trinitarian. I know I'm using some big theological words, but you see God talking to God all the time in the Old Covenant, all the time, not rarely. And they didn't have their theology all worked out like the church did after the arrival of Jesus Christ. But this is not particularly exceptional of God talking to God. God delighting in God and God delighting in the stuff that gets made on these six days of creation. Folks, you cannot get in on the story unless you get in on the song. You can't. You can't treat the story like a microscope. It's actually tragic if you do. You can't get in this, on the story unless you get in on the delight of it all. You know, I've been thinking about at the end of uh, Jesus' life as it's described in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is facing the cross he keeps talking about his joy. Like this is, this is during the Last Supper and in the garden, right before the soldiers come. He's saying to them things like in John 15, I'm going to tell you all this before I go because I want your joy to be full. And uh, chapter 16, he says, you know, you're going to be really sad for a while, but it's going to be like the sadness of pregnancy. It's going to lead to the birthing of new life. And you're going to have joy like you never imagined. And in, ver and in chapter 17, that final prayer between Jesus and the Father, he says, God, please, would you give them the most complete joy they've ever had? And he's heading to the cross. 
Joy is totally the context for the cross as much as sorrow, at least according to the gospel writer, John. The cross is all about undoing the curse of death that comes into the world through sin. It's all about the full forgiveness, God's full forgiveness of sinners because of the substitute of a righteous one who comes between them and the punishment required for sin. But you know it's also about a forgiven people being totally rehabilitated back to what they were before sin ever entered the world. It's like Jesus has in view before he even takes to the cross, I need that delight all the way back. This isn't just about solving the problem of sin. It's getting them back to what they were here for in the first place, which is delight, which is fullness of joy. He took the cross to bring us back to the joyful delight of the beginning. That's what this is about. Some of you, I have conversations like, I am just split between being able to hold on to the idea that I really am a sinner and I really do cause bad things in the world and I'm guilty and my total belovedness, that God totally delights in me. And I get it. But the scriptures offers you both. And you need both. Think of it this way. If God is about the work of rehabilitating us, Did you ever hear anybody of rehabilitating total garbage? No. You've been to rehab? You know somebody? Some of you have. You know people have been to rehab. What's it for? It's to restore prior glory. It's to buff out your tarnished glory so it shines brighter. What's really there and what should come through. You have to know you're a sinner. You also have to know and believe It's really good that you're here. God's saying over and over and over again, we're going to get there next week at the creation of human beings. It's good that you're here. He delights in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.